Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that we can come into your presence this morning, knowing that as we open our Bibles, that you are going to speak to our very hearts. And Lord, we ask that as we come to the study of your word, that we would have the attitude of surrender the willingness to have your will done and not ours. Father, we want to be ready when you come to take us home. Help us to that end, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have your Bible, so please turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation, the sixth chapter, verses 14 and 15 is where we are heading. Revelation chapter 6. Verses 14 and 15, our sermon title this morning, Where Art Thou? Where Art Thou? Revelation 6 is a place where we find John describing in one of the many places in his apocalyptic book, he's describing the second coming of Jesus. He does it multiple times, several times throughout the book of Revelation. And here we find one description. Verse 14 and 15, the Bible says this, And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. That's second coming language. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Very similar to his description in Revelation 16. Verse 15, he says, And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. It's sad words that are recorded in this book of the Bible that there will be those when Jesus comes back the second time who want to be hid from Jesus. It's something to give some pause and reflection to, that by God's grace, we will not be part of that group that wants to be hidden when Jesus comes the second time. The face of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, will be terrifying to this group of people. They cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them and to hide them from the beautiful face of the one who has redeemed us from sin. This is the man who created man in his own image. In the Garden of Eden, he breathed into his nostrils in a very intimate way the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This is the man who gave up heaven to come down here to this earth to die on a cruel cross so that you and I might be redeemed. This is the man who right now is in the kingdom of heaven doing the work of intercession as our high priest who is preparing a place for you and I so that one day we can be with him in the kingdom of heaven. This is the man that some will want to be hid from. The Bible goes on in verse 16, and it says this, and said to the rocks, mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Why do the wicked want to be hidden from the face of Jesus. I look forward to seeing the face of Jesus. How about you? Have you ever thought about what the face of Jesus is going to look like? 
something to use your imagination and, and try to think about what is it going to look like to see the face of Jesus. Yet here are people who are going to talk to rocks and mountains. Have you ever had much of a conversation with a rock before? Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I want to be part of the group that when Jesus comes back, that I will say, lo, this is my God. I have waited for him and will rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen? There will be those who say that to God, and there will be those who speak to rocks and ask them to hide them from the beautiful face of Jesus. Now, of course, when we think about hiding in the Bible... Uh, We here are in the last book of the Bible, but as we go back to the book of Genesis, keep your finger in Revelation, we're going to come back to that here in just a few moments. But as we go to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, we go to the very first place in the Bible where we find man hiding himself from God. Genesis chapter 3, and of course the fall is in play at this point. Adam and Eve have eaten the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in verse 9, the Bible tells us this, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? When you read in Patriarchs and Prophets, you actually find that Adam and Eve enjoyed walking with Jesus in the Garden of Eden. They enjoyed being in his presence. And when Jesus came to the Garden, I can almost imagine in my, in my imagination that they were anxious to connect up with him and to walk with him and to talk with him and to spend time with their creator. What an awesome experience that must have been. But here they have done what God had asked them not to do, They had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as God came and was walking in the coolness of the garden, Adam and Eve were not coming up to him the way they normally did. And so he calls out and he says, where are you? Did he know the answer to that question? God always knows where his children are. He was asking the question more for Adam than he was for himself. Verse 10, the Bible goes on and says, and he, that is Adam, said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. From the Bible, as you read that verse there in verse 10, why is it that Adam hid himself from Jesus? The Bible says it was because he was what? He tells the Lord, I was naked and I hid myself. Now, we know as we fill in the blanks here from reading the story that there is a reason why Adam was naked and hid himself. It's because he ate from the tree and that resulted in him sinning against God. So it wasn't so much the nakedness that made Adam hide from God, although that was part of it. But what really made him want to hide himself from God was the fact that he had sinned. Whenever we sin, the natural human tendency is to hide from God. 
In the garden, we see that tendency. And with the wicked in the last days, we see that tendency. For they have indulged in sin until it is reached to its full conclusion. And all throughout the history of this earth, the same story has played out. When we sin, we want to hide and draw ourselves away from God. When in reality, we need to come to him and ask for forgiveness. Amen? We need to ask him to forgive us and and help us to overcome those sins that cause us to fall and want us to hide from him. The natural tendency when we have sinned is to separate ourselves from God and his people. And it's inevitable that you will find when people separate themselves from the church, when they separate themselves from God's people, they may have certain reasons for why they have done that. But when you drill down and when they really get to their heart reason why they have separated themselves from God's people, you will oftentimes find it's because of some sin in their life. Now, that doesn't mean that the devil doesn't use other sources to try to chase people away from the church and chase people away from God, but we hide ourselves from God because of something that we have done wrong in our lives. We see that in the story of Adam, and we see that in the story in Revelation chapter 6. Now, go back with me to Revelation 6, if you would. I told you to keep your finger there. There's a couple of other verses I want to read here this morning. Revelation 6, we're going to look at verse 16 and 17. As we conclude this chapter, the Bible says this, And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. Why are the wicked wanting to be hid from the face of Jesus? Because they are sinners, and sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. Verse 17, the Bible goes on, it says this, For the great day of his wrath is come, and what's the question that the wicked people ask? Who shall be able to stand? Obviously, they can't stand. They're calling for the rocks and mountains to fall on them. And when rocks and mountains fall on you, it's pretty difficult to stay standing. But they're asking this question, and I think the wicked are asking a question that maybe some of us don't even know the answer to. And I think it's a good question for us to reflect upon this question of the wicked. Who shall be able to stand in his when he appears in the clouds of heaven? What is it going to take? There will be those who want to hide from God. There will be those who will be able to stand and want to be in the presence of God. There will be those who cry out to the rocks and the mountains, and there will be those who cry out to God and saying, I've been waiting for you. Thank you for coming to take me home. But what makes the difference? Who shall be able to stand, they ask. Well, David asks the same question in the book of Psalms. Go there with me, Psalms chapter 24. He doesn't just ask the question, but he actually answers it. Psalms 24, verses 3 and 4. Psalms 24, verses 3 and 4. He asks the question again in verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall, what's the next word there? Stand in his holy place. He's basically asking the same question. Who will be able to stand in the holy place? Who will be able to stand in the presence of God? When Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven and we see him face to face, who will be able to stand? And he answers the question in verse 4. He that hath what? Clean hands and a what? 
pure heart who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully. There's a lot in verse 4 that could be unpacked. We're not going to take the time to unpack it. We're only going to look at two things. He answers his question by saying, those who will be able to stand are those that have clean hands and a pure So the answer to the wicked's question, who shall be able to stand, are those who have clean hands and a pure heart. Again, I find it interesting that there are no list of theological doctrines that are listed there to, uh, you know, give evidence that we can stand. Again, theology is important. We need to understand the doctrines. But when it comes to Christ coming in the clouds of heaven, those that will be able to stand are the ones that have clean hands and a pure heart, pure heart, pure soul, pure mind. Now, of course, we know in Bible that hands are oftentimes illustrative of the actions in our lives. There's several Bible passages that indicate that the things that we do with our hands are the actions in our lives. So those that will be able to stand are those that have good actions in their lives. But the Bible doesn't just stop there because you can do good with your hands and have corruptness in your mind. But the Bible says that he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. You know, sometimes we spend a lot of time on the having clean hands or doing good things, having good actions in our lives. But really where we need to spend the bulk of our time is having the pure heart. Because if we have the pure heart, from that pure heart will come clean hands. Are we all together, yes or no? Right? So those that will be able to stand when Jesus comes are the ones that have good actions, but not just good actions, but they also have a pure heart. They have a heart that is reflecting the character of Jesus. Now, just as an example of this, several years ago, I was sitting on my couch with my computer, and I had a friend of mine who had just recently gotten interested in a certain type of athletic pursuit called triathlon. You may have heard it before. They swim for about two miles. They uh, ride a bike for about 112 miles, and then they run a marathon on top of that 26 miles. Anybody want to sign up? And I watched this athletic, you know, just, just, just the, the, the tenacity that these people have to push through. And they have a time limit. They have to do it in 18 hours. And I thought, this is absolutely amazing what the human body can do when it's abused in such a way. And as I sat there watching these people uh, going through this, this, this athletic pursuit, there were some people that were quite a bit older than me that were doing it. And I was impressed. I was like, wow, look at these people. They're so much older than me. I mean, some of these people are 30 years older than me, and they're doing this. And as we were watching it, my, my dear wife, she said to me, she said, sweetheart, if those old ladies can do it, surely you can. <laughs> That's the exact quote. She told me this morning on the way over here, I, re, I, I misquoted it over in Fremont. She said, the real quote is this. Now, when, when, when she told me that, you know, of course I was like, <clears throat> you know, okay, thank you, dear, appreciate that. 
But, but, but as I watched this and as I thought about it, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what? I want to give this a try. Now, there is no way I was going to be able to do the full distance. There's just no way I'd be able to do that. I don't have the time to dedicate to training to something of that magnitude. But I wanted to sign up for something that was a shorter distance, that still did the swim, bike, run. And so I got on my computer and I signed up for one. I paid the money and I was going to do this race. And once I signed up for that thing, guess what had to happen? I couldn't be a couch potato, could I? So my thoughts transformed into an action until I started riding my bike three times a week and running three times a week and swimming two times a week. And, you know, that was back when I only had one kid. Now I have three kids and I've given up on it. But I did it. And, and, and the, the thoughts of my mind as I thought about this and as I thought about it more and more and as I was impressed by what these people were doing, the thoughts became a action in my life. This is something that you cannot change. Whatever you think about is what you become. What you talk about is what you become. When we see the actions in people's life, what you are getting is a portal into their minds. You can't read people's thoughts, but you can see what people do. And you might try to cover up your actions and, and do lots of good things to try to cover up the bad things, but the actions are a natural reaction or a natural expression of what's going on right here inside of our minds. And that's why we need to spend the majority of our time as God's people asking God to heal our minds so that we can have good actions that come from the right source. Verse 6, continuing here in Psalms chapter 24, David goes on and he answers another question. And the question is, how can I have clean hands and a pure heart? How does this happen? If, if this is what it takes to be able to stand in the presence of God, to have clean hands and a pure heart, how can I have that? And he goes on and he says this, verse 6, this is the generation of, of them that seek him that what? Seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. So here David is telling us that those who have clean hands and a pure heart, those who are able to stand at his appearing are those who have sought who? Sought the face of Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. What did the wicked want to be hid from in Revelation chapter 6? What was it? They wanted to be hid from the face of Jesus. So when Revelation 6 takes place, there are those who want to hide from the face of Jesus, and there are those who want to seek the face of Jesus. And I want to tell you something right now. What happens in Revelation 6 is only a natural expression of what has happened through their entire life. The wicked have spent their time seeking other things and have been distracted from seeking after the face of God. But the righteous people have spent their time seeking the face of Jesus. And because of that, they have clean hands and a pure heart and are able to stand when Jesus comes back. How many of you want to be part of that group? Who shall be able to stand? Those that have clean hands and a pure heart and who have sought the face of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, you can jot this down. The Bible says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. The righteous follow that advice. They see the face of Jesus and they are changed. Now, what is it about looking at the face of Jesus that purifies 
uh, our hands or gives us clean hands and a pure heart. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Your Bible's getting a little bit of workout this morning, but that's okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. What is it about the face of Jesus and seeking after it that gives us clean hands and a pure heart? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, the Bible says this, For God, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. Now listen to this next part. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the what? Face of who? Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. When I look at the face of Jesus, when I seek the face of Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 6, what do I get a knowledge of? The glory of God. Are you following me? Right? So those who stand when Jesus comes, they have clean hands and a pure heart. They have clean hands and a pure heart because they are seeking the face of Jesus. And as they seek the face of Jesus, the Bible says that they are gaining a knowledge of what? The glory of God. Now, those of you that have been around this place for quite a while in the Adventist church understand what the glory of God is. But I'm going to go to it anyways so that we can all be on the same page here. Go with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 33. What is the glory of God according to Scripture? What is it about the glory of God that is important to us? Exodus chapter 33, and we're going to look at verses 18 and 19. Now, in Exodus 33, while you are turning there, Moses and God are having a long conversation. And it just kind of is an illustration of how close Moses and God were. They were close friends with one another. They had lots to talk about. And you can read that conversation if you choose to in the entire chapter of Exodus 33, But we're just going to look at a question or a request that Moses makes in verse 18. Exodus 33, 18, the Bible says this, And he, that is Moses, said, I beseech thee, show me thy what? What did Moses want to see? The glory of who? The glory of God. He said, show me thy glory. And in verse 19, the Bible says this, God is speaking now, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Moses asks, show me thy glory. God says, okay, I'll show you my goodness, I'll show you my graciousness, and I'll show you my mercy. Now, if somebody's good, if somebody's gracious, if somebody's merciful, what do you usually say that person has? He has a good character. He has a good personality. He's somebody that you probably want to hang out with. So what we find is this. Moses asks God, show me thy glory. And God says, okay, I'm going to show you my character. I'm going to show you my goodness. I'm going to show you my graciousness. I'm going to show you my mercy. This is the glory of God. And so Moses was shown the glory of God in answer to his request, show me thy glory. So when I behold the face of Jesus, 
When I seek his face, according to scripture, I get a knowledge of the glory of God or I get a knowledge of the what? Character of God. As I behold the face of Jesus, I get a knowledge of the character of God. Now, when you think about character, your character is usually, according to the spirit of prophecy, is made up of two things. It's made up of your thoughts and your feelings. What are they? Two things. Thoughts and feelings. Your thoughts and feelings is what makes up the moral character. So when I see the character of God in the face of Jesus, what I am seeing is God's thoughts and God's feelings. Now, I want you to go, to, go with me to another passage of Scripture that's going to take this one step further, and then we're going to make some concluding remarks. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. We're going to tie this all together here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And verse 18. The Bible says this. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the what? Or the character of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we are what? We are what? We are changed. When I behold the face of Jesus and I gain a knowledge of the glory of God, which is the character of God, the more I behold that, the more I what? The more I become like it. So those who are able to stand, the wicked ask a very important question for us to answer. Who shall be able to stand? The only ones who will be able to stand at Jesus' appearing are those who are caught up with the business of beholding the face of Jesus. They are caught up with the business of beholding the face of Jesus. That's their business because they have no other business than that. By beholding, we become changed. I met a lady one time, in fact, I still know her, who told me about this certain individual in her life that she disliked. And she would tell me all of the things that this person did to her throughout her life, all of the bad things. It's like she had a Rolodex inside of her mind where she kept a record of these things that this individual had done, and she could, bam, call it back in just a moment's notice. And the scary thing to me was this. The more I got to know this lady and the more I heard about this individual who had hurt her, the more I realized that this lady that I was getting to know was becoming just like that person that she hated. You know, if somebody gives you a hard time at work, at church, in your family, if somebody gives you a hard time, the worst thing you can possibly do is to think about it. It's the worst thing you can do. Because the more you think about that thing, 
the more you will become just like them. The very thing that you condemn in that person, the very thing that you dislike in that person, the very thing that you wish they never did to you, you will end up doing that to somebody else. You will end up speaking like that and acting like that because it's a law of human nature that what you behold is what you, what you behold is what you become. And I'm gonna suggest to you this morning that those who cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb were not caught up with the business of beholding the face of Jesus. They were caught up in beholding the other things that happen in their life. And I'm gonna share with you a few thoughts from inspiration on that right now. How many of you remember the good old book, Steps to Christ? Fantastic little book, isn't it? I've been going through it again in my devotional time. Uh, I like to do that every now and then just to kind of review some of the things that are in there. It's the ABCs right here. It's ABCs to having a Christian experience with God and growing in your experience. Not just starting it, but growing it. Fantastic little book. I'm being blessed by it again in my, my devotional time. And I stumbled across the quote this past week, even before I, had de- before I had decided what I was going to preach on. I think the Lord knew what was coming at the end of the week when I would finally make that decision. But here in Steps of Christ, page 71, I want you to listen very carefully to what uh, the servant of the Lord says. She says this, when the mind dwells upon self, when the mind dwells upon what? When the mind dwells upon self, it is turned away from Christ. We could leave at that and really have something to think about. Do you want to be drawn away from Christ? Of course you don't. Every single one of us here this morning want to be ready when Jesus comes back. Every single one of us here this morning want to go to heaven. Every single one of us want to say, lo, this is our God. I've waited for him. We all want that. But what she is telling us is what happens when we look at self. She says, when the mind dwells upon self, it is turned away from Christ, the source of strength and life. Where is the source of strength and life? In Christ. He is the one that will enable us to stand at that great day. Now she goes on. Hence, it is Satan's constant effort. It is Satan's what? What, what do you think of when you think of the word constant? What, the, so she is about to tell you what Satan does all the time. Are you ready? It is Satan's constant effort, she says, to keep the attention diverted from the Savior and thus prevent the union of communion of the soul with Christ. What is his constant effort? to keep our minds distracted from God and thinking about other things. Now, now what she's going to do next is she's going to list four things that the devil tries to get you to think about. Are you ready for this? Are you ready? Four things. Number one, the pleasures of the world, life's care and perplexities and sorrows, the faults of others, or your own faults and imperfections. Your own faults and imperfections. So four things. The pleasures of this world, 
the perplexities and sorrows. Uh, sorry, let me, let me look at my notes here. It's easier to see it in my notes. Uh, the pleasures of the world, life's cares and perplexities, the faults of others, and your own faults and imperfections. Those are the four things that the devil will try to get you to think about to get your mind off of being focused on Jesus. So let me tell you something this morning. When you think about the pleasures of this world instead of the pleasure of knowing God, you are thinking thoughts that the devil is putting in your mind. When you get caught up with the cares and perplexities of life and the sorrows that come, and that becomes all-consuming to you, you are thinking the thoughts that the devil is placing in your mind instead of reflecting and thinking about the thoughts that God would have us to think about or beholding the face of Jesus. When you are thinking about the faults and failings of others or your own faults and imperfections, these are the thoughts of the enemy, and it's his constant effort to get you to think that way. This is fearful stuff, brothers and sisters, because this stuff swirls around among God's people like there's no tomorrow. We think because we have all of our ducks lined up in terms of what we believe and what day we go to church and what church we are associated with that we've got everything lined up. But let me ask you a question. Where are your thoughts during the week? And I had to ask myself this very same question. Because listen, before I preach this stuff to you, I have to preach it to myself. And I had to ask myself the question, is this the stuff that I'm thinking about? If so, I'm not seeking the face of Jesus. And if I'm not seeking the face of Jesus, I'm not going to be able to stand when Jesus comes. So when you wake up in the morning and as you go through your day, what are you seeking? What are you, what are you looking at? What are you thinking about? What is your constant in your life? Are you seeking the face of Jesus and his goodness, his character, his loveliness, uh, all of the things that are associated with him? Or are you doing the other things that the devil is constantly trying to get you to think about? Now listen, if the devil is constantly trying to do this, it mean, that means that it's going to be a constant battle, right? This is something that I'm going to constantly have to, uh, you know, resist and ask God to give me victory over, to help me to have pure thoughts and to seek the face of Jesus instead of the other things, the worldly pursuits and all the other that the devil tries to get me to think about. Now she concludes by saying this. Do not be misled by his devices. Many who are really conscientious and who desire to live for God, he too often leads to dwell upon their own faults and weaknesses. Listen to this. And thus, by separating them from Christ, he hopes to gain the victory. What does it do to my relationship with Christ when I think this way? What does it do? It separates me. Listen, brothers and sisters, we, we all want to be in heaven, but we have to rein our thoughts in. We can't let our thoughts just go wherever they want to go. We can't think whatever we want to think about other people. We can't do whatever we want to do with our thoughts and our time and all that kind of stuff. We've got to rein it in because the devil's constant effort is to try to get your thoughts to think about other things because he knows the actions that will come from those thoughts are not going to be clean hands. They will be defiled. I don't want to cry out for the rocks and mountains to fall on me. I don't want to be somebody there who has a, head of good, a good head of theology on his shoulders 
and understands all the right answers to all the Bible questions and is good at doing Bible studies and is good at keeping the Sabbath and welcoming the Sabbath in and closing the Sabbath and guarding the edges of the Sabbath, I don't want to be that person that cries out for the rocks and mountains to fall on me because I didn't seek the face of Jesus. But I want both. I want all of that truth I want all of that doctrine. I want all of the Sabbath and everything that goes along with it. And I want to seek the face of Jesus and have that character reflected in my life. So, when you're tempted to look at your own mistakes, put the devil in his place and start looking at Jesus. When you're tempted to look at the faults and failings of others, Put the devil in his place and start looking at Jesus. When you're tempted to look at the ugly things that are happening in this world and are happening even in your family or in your church family, put the devil in his place and look to Jesus. When you are tempted to look and to be discouraged by where you are at in your own spiritual walk with the Lord, put the devil in his place and look to Jesus. He says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Not to the pastor, not to the church leaders, not to anybody else, but look to him. And there we will find salvation and we will find the character of God. So I ask you the question, what are you beholding? What consumes your time? What consumes your thoughts? What consumes your energy? And I appeal to you this morning, to make seeking the face of Jesus number one in your life. That everything else would fall by the wayside and that we would focus our time and energy in allowing God to transform my life instead of trying to be the ones that transforms other people's lives. We're only responsible for ourselves, amen? God is willing and able to create in us this character of God, but he can't do it if we're not beholding him. He can't do it if we're not looking to him. He can't do it. But when we do, he can. I want to encourage you this morning in your personal devotional time. Maybe you, uh, I don't know what you do for your devotions, but for a long time, I used to be caught up in my devotional time in studying theological things and trying to find answers to Bible questions and things of that nature. And that's what would take up my devotional time And I found that my walk with the Lord wasn't as strong as it should be. And somebody that I greatly respect came along and unbeknownst to my situation, told me in the hearing of other people, so it wasn't directed at me, but I heard him make this comment that studying the Bible to find answers to difficult Bible passages and theology and doctrine is good, but we don't want to spend our devotional time doing that. We need to spend another time doing that. But in our devotional time, we need to spend time seeking the face of Jesus. That's the time where I'm coming to the Lord and saying, Father, here's my character, here's where I'm at, and I'm asking you to do the work of transformation. That's the time where we spend with the Lord beholding the face of Jesus, 
getting to know him better. And there are places in the Bible where you find concentrated examples of the character of Christ, the Gospels, many of the Old Testament stories, you will find there the character of Christ. And as you behold the character of Jesus in your devotional time, as you read it and say, Lord, I don't have this, but I want it, please give it to me. As you beseech the throne of God and day after day after day, behold the face of Jesus and pray day after day, give me this experience, you will find that God will be begin to do this transformation. Who will do the transformation? God will do the transformation. It has to come from within. That's something that God creates within you. You can't put it on on the external. You cannot create it yourself on the inside. It has to come from God. And that time in your prayer together with him, seeking his face, studying his word, and praying and asking, God, give me this experience. I won't let you go until you bless me. Spend your devotional time seeking the face of Jesus. And I believe that as you do it, other people around you without you even saying a word will know that Jesus has been working in your life. So I appeal to you this morning. Put Jesus number one in your life. Seek his face because by God's grace, when Jesus comes, I would like to see every member of the Muskegon Seventh-day Adventist Church standing and saying, this is my God, I've waited for him, and will rejoice in his salvation. If that's your desire, I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning as we make that commitment to the Lord. Father in heaven, thank you for your patience with us, Lord. Thank you for your long-suffering, your mercy, and your constant willingness to perform this miracle in our lives. Father, you know that we are human and that we are frail and weak. The psalmist says that you remember that we are dust. Father, we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we want to be about the business of seeking the face of Jesus. Father, help us to put away all the other thoughts that crowd out our time, that the devil is constantly seeking to distract us with thus keeping us captive to his will. Help us, Father, to resist. By your grace and strength to rein in the thoughts of our minds and to place them upon that which comes from above. Oh, Father, we are weak and we cannot do this on our own. We must have your help. But that's the encouraging part. You are willing to do it for us. We're willing, Lord. We're standing before you this morning. Do this miracle for us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.